0: Turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 12, beginning at verse 1 through verse 11. Six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was served in Jesus' honor. Mary served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. Heavenly Father, as we turn to this passage. Help us to take it to heart and to be able to see where our hearts lie, what is most important to us, what we would pour out for Jesus' sake. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. What is it in this present day that you miss the most? There are many good things that God has given us. friends and family are first and foremost, we miss the opportunity to gather together. We, we look outside and see the beauty. I'm so thankful that we're going through this in the springtime and not in, in fall and November when it's getting cold and rainy and the days are getting darker. At least we look outside and see the, the beauty of God's creation. There's so many good things that God gives us that we should be grateful for. They are foretastes of heaven in many ways because every good gift comes from God. And this world reflects his glory, and we long for the day that it is, it is permanent, it is eternal, and we don't have to lose because the dark side of this fallen world is that there are so many things that are broken, so many things that are wrong. We stress over our jobs. We stress over our health. Perhaps in this week when you are home with your family, you're beginning to stress over each other because you're having to deal with each other, and you can't get You can get only so far away. And when you get worried and anxious, sometimes those anxieties come out with tensions in relationships. There's so many broken things about this world that we wonder, how could God allow the world to suffer in such a way? But so many beautiful things in the world that we tend to love this world and cling to it and worship it. See, that's the key. That's what we're talking about this morning. There are so many good things. That we, should, that we could worship and cling to. But there's some things that are just more important. This passage is a, a dramatic demonstration of that. In this passage, it opens with Jesus coming to Bethany, where Lazarus lived. Now, we have been preaching through John, but we, we went out of order. Because on Easter Sunday, we wanted to focus on the resurrection. And we looked to Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead for our Easter uh, text. And we skipped forward to that. Then we went back uh, to earlier chapters in John. So now we are skipping over John 11 to go to chapter 12. Keep the context in mind. It's not that hard to to follow. Remember that before chapter 12 is chapter 11. And what happened in chapter 11? Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And that it created such a commotion that it says that uh, in verse 54 of chapter 11, it says, therefore Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the Jews. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the desert, to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. So when he comes back to Bethany, just imagine what a huge occasion this was. Jesus had not seen Mary and Martha and Lazarus, who was restored to his family. The townspeople were celebrating Jesus, he's coming back, he's coming back. People from Jerusalem, which was not far from Bethany, were coming because they heard Jesus was coming back and they wanted to see not only Jesus, but Lazarus whom he had raised from the dead. This was a big event, a big occasion. So Jesus was back and John points out, he makes sure we see the connection. Where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Now, the Gospels of Matthew and Mark also record this event. And there's some minor details that are different in Matthew and Mark, not because they're in conflict. Because Matthew and Mark chose to include them, and none of them were in conflict with John, we learn from Matthew and Mark that the donor was served at the house of Simon the leper. So Simon the leper would not have had leprosy on this day. He must have been healed, and if he was healed, he was very likely healed, though the scriptures don't spell it out, by Jesus. So here we have a twofold a testimony of the miraculous work of Jesus, that this dinner was served in Jesus' honor at the home of Simon the leper. And in John, if you thought, well, it's obvious if, if Lazarus is at the table and Martha is serving, it must have been at his house. No, this was a whole town event, biggest house in town, had everybody in. It was the house of Simon the leper, the one who had had leprosy, now was healed and restored, but you know they kept calling him Simon the leper, not, not to disdain it, but just to marvel at the miracle that Jesus had done. That's likely the background to it. And Lazarus was also there, and so was the rest of the town and even people from Jerusalem. It says, Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table. Then Mary took about a pint, and we'll go on and look at that next. But doesn't this remind you of Luke chapter 10? In Luke chapter 10, we have the story, uh, the the famous story of Mary and Martha, where uh, Martha opens up her home to Jesus, it's at the end of of Luke chapter 10. Jesus comes in, Martha is busy uh, serving the dinner, and Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet. So we find in uh, verse uh, 38 and following, As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, they came to a village where a woman named Martha opened their home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made, and she came to him, to Jesus, and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Now, we're not throwing Martha under the bus here. Martha opened her home to Jesus. Martha was serving Jesus in doing the work, but there was still something, an edge that needed to be dealt with because she was resenting Mary. Can you imagine the difference in this story? If if Mary had come to Martha, it would have been good on her part to say, Martha, how can I help? And Martha had said to Mary, Mary, I'll take care of this so that you can just sit at Jesus' feet and listen to him. That would have been a house full of joy. But even in this home that that believed in Jesus, that were disciples of Jesus, we always have edges that we need to to put off, we need to be sanctified in, and perhaps you're experiencing some of those edges this week in your homes as you're sheltered in place. What are the little resentments that come up, the little rivalries, the little uh, tiffs that happen? That's happening here. This story likewise is one that expresses our theme this morning, that some things are just more important. Martha was great to open her home to Jesus. Martha was great to serve Jesus. But she was beginning to miss the point of just being with Jesus. And Jesus said, Martha, Martha. I wonder how many times Jesus has to repeat our name twice. Or he calls you by your your full name. That's what my mother would do. Martha, Martha. You are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better. It will not be taken from her. Isn't it interesting that both times that a detailed story is told about the home of Mary and Martha in addition to the resurrection of Lazarus, this theme of something's better, what's most important, rises to the forefront This chapter has the personalities the the same. They fit. Martha's serving. And Mary has a bright idea. She took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. We'll deal with Judas in just a moment, but we can... Look forward enough to know that this was a valuable commodity. This perfume is worth about a year's wages. Families would save these things for the special occasion of anointing the body at a burial. It's like we in our culture save for weddings. You know, if I just look at a wedding budget, I just say, that's ridiculous. It's ridiculous to pay that much for a meal. But somehow when your son or your daughter is getting married, it's such a once-in-a-lifetime occasion, you just can't say, I won't do it. It's one of those big events. And so you set aside the money for such an occasion, for such a wedding. That's not a right or wrong about it. I commend those who are, are able to, to forego and be thrifty about it. I also commend those who celebrate In your families. I don't want to present that as an application of this passage. But for you to understand what it was like for a family that may be wealthy enough to have plenty of this around, but not likely. This was likely a lifetime savings kind of thing where they'd have a few of these for deaths in the family. They had just been through it in the previous chapter, they had taken their brother Lazarus and Prepared him and wrapped him in the claws and, and embalmed him in this way. It had the very practical purpose that you put perfume on the body, because, as in the previous chapter, when the King James put it, "After four days, it stinketh." We pointed that out when we were back on Easter when we were looking at this uh, chapter. And it was needed. But Mary had this, this uh, jar, perhaps. It was the one more for either her or Martha. Perhaps each of the the kids had one reserved for them. A lifetime savings event. And she wanted to pour it on Jesus' feet. Matthew and Mark tell us that she poured it on Jesus' head. There's no conflict here. When they were reclining at the table, they would literally recline. They didn't have chairs. And they would lie down on their elbows with their feet sticking out, in the back, and that was the, the custom of the way they would recline at the table. And since most people are right handed, they were probably on their left elbow and they'd be eating with their right hand reclining at the table. And Matthew and Mark tell us that Mary came and anointed Jesus' head. That's the, the uh, way to honor the person. Kings were anointed, priests were anointed. Jesus was anointed as Mary honored him. And that was the emphasis of Matthew and Mark. But the emphasis in all of them is that it was an abundance of oil. She had more than enough. She also did what a servant would do. She washed his feet. And not just with water, but with this perfume. And she wiped her feet with her hair. Some, yet. People have looked at this passage and been incredulous because a respectable woman would not undo her hair in in public company in the presence of men. Mary wasn't concerned about that. She was so thrilled to have Jesus in her home that she took the lowest place to wash his feet with this expensive perfume and to wipe his feet with her hair. Now, why would she do this? It doesn't make a lot of sense if you just see it in, in isolation from everything else. And it's certainly not a norm that we should be doing in church. That we, you know, Some churches do have the ceremony of foot washing. Can you imagine if every Sunday you had people bring, bring your most expensive thing and we're just going to pour it out every Sunday? It's not normative like that. It's extravagant devotion that Mary's expressing to Jesus. But it makes sense if you remember the occasion. What just happened the last time they saw Jesus? Recorded for us in the previous chapter. The unthinkable. They had asked for Jesus to come before Lazarus died to heal him. But Lazarus had died. And Jesus arrived late. They were frustrated with him. But Jesus revealed his power and his glory by having them roll back the stone, calling Lazarus and raising him from the dead and restoring Lazarus to his family. This was a more special occasion than any wedding, a more special occasion than any event that you and I can imagine because we just can't imagine what it would be like to have someone someone not brought back from a few minutes of clinical death, but from four days of true permanent death and restored to the family. And Mary's thinking, what can we do? And she takes the most precious thing they have, and she goes and anoints Jesus' head with it. And John's emphasis is, she sits at his feet, the place of the most humble servant, and pours that perfume out. Undoes her hair, and wipes his feet with her hair. Some of the material that I read this week uh, noted that the it, the place of a of washing someone's feet was such a low place for a servant. It was the bottom of the totem pole. In one case, there was a, a Jewish midrash law where a Jewish slave could not be required to wash your feet, only a Gentile slave. It was lower than the low. But she just loved Jesus. She could not believe what he had done. She loved being at his feet. I don't think she thought through all the concepts, all the things. I don't think she was, was it wasn't a false humility. She just was overjoyed. It was extravagant devotion. So that's what Mary offered. Then we have Judas's objection. Judas said in verse uh, 4, it says, But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. Now, at that point, this could have been conceived to be in good faith. After all, Jesus taught them to reach out to the outcast. He's the one that touched and healed the leper. He cared for the woman at the well that would have been a social outcast. He cared for the poor. He taught his disciples to care for the poor. He's the one who would say in, in uh, the parable of the sheep and the goats that this is how you know who belongs in the kingdom when the evidence is there. Inasmuch as you do it to the least of these, you do it unto me. He discipled his disciples to care for the poor. But in Judas's hands, this was a dangerous point. Beware of the contentious person that has a good point to make because he's a danger in the way he uses that as a club. I wondered whether I should tell an actual story. I'm going to do it with such generalities and it's so many years away and I don't think any of you could identify what it is. And I don't even think the person that I'm going to use as an example here was like Judas. He was like the other disciples who listened to Judas. This was a man who had a good heart uh, for Jesus who had good intentions about Jesus, and he had a good point to make, but it was a point that actually demoralized and disillusioned and hurt the kingdom. There was a church that was meeting in a school identified with that because we were uh, in church planting too in the 80s. And I understand the, the, uh, the anxieties of that. Are you going to make it or not? This church found a piece of property that they could buy. Uh, the elders Uh, were unanimous in believing it was what God was leading them to do. And they proposed in the congregational meeting to the congregation that they buy uh, this property. And so the uh, congregation was responding, uh, yes, until one man stood up and he said, our vision's too small. This property's not enough for the kingdom. And the congregation got unsettled about that. I don't believe that the man was trying to to unsettle things or stop the kingdom. He had a good point to make, but the effect of that good point was to stop that church in its tracks. They said they would think about it for 30 days, meet again, and when the 30 days came back around, the property was gone, it was sold. The church was never able to buy property and got stuck there. Be careful how you use good points. Because the disciples listened to Judas. And they thought, that's a good point. Matthew tells us that the disciples were indignant towards the woman. Mark doesn't name the disciples. The Mark says some who were there. So it even spread beyond the disciples, likely to others who were uh, at this you know, public celebration. The whole town was there. Some from Jerusalem were there. And they picked up on this point, And the disciples were indignant. And Mark tells us, They rebuked the woman. That's what's going on here. Now, the disciples and some of the others might not have been acting in bad faith. They were acting in good faith. But you have to be careful who you're listening to because Judas was not acting in good faith. We know from the Gospel of John in the next verse, he did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Make sure that when you have a point to make, that you've checked your heart, that you're not acting out of somehow selfish personal reasons or you're reacting to a past hurt or some other thing that that, uh, creates a bad heart in you, even when you have a good point to make. And be careful who you listen to. because. It's hard sometimes to judge what God will lead us to do. But if it leads to being indignant towards those who are devoted to Jesus and just loving him, if you're indignant towards those people, that's a good sign that something's gone wrong. If you're rebuking someone who is trying to offer to Jesus an expression of love that you don't understand, you don't express, but you're indignant about it and you rebuke, it could be coming from a bad heart. Maybe not in you, but maybe in somebody you're listening to. You can stir up trouble pretty easily by either initiating it or listening to, to those that have initiated it. I know that this is hard to apply in specifics. Pray about it, that you're not involved in that kind of trouble. That's where our churches get bad reputations when we're always you know, at each other's throat over this or that little petty thing. We need to have this the the calming grace of Jesus Christ, and remember what he's done. You see, I think all of this was a tempest in the teapot. If Mary had just stood up and said, and maybe she did, and it's not recorded in the Bible, can you imagine if she rose up from Jesus' feet or looked up with her hair still all wet with the oil and said, but don't you know, he raised our brother back from the dead. That's why I'm doing this. It's when we remember what Jesus has done that it changes us. It makes everything else wash away. We need to remember that Jesus has done something for us that is actually far better than what he did for Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, because he raised Lazarus back on this side of the grave. Think about that. As astounding as it was, a number of years later, we don't know how many, Lazarus faced death. Again. If that is all that Jesus would have done, how much would that count? Jesus did that, did this miracle with Lazarus as a sign of the greater miracle that He's done for all of us who put our hope and trust in Him. Because He went to the cross and by His own death broke the power of sin that we may be forgiven in Him. And He rose from the dead and He gives that life to us. And he promises, you will not perish. You will not perish, but have everlasting life. It's the whole purpose of the Gospel of John, that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Keep your focus on that, and that will move you to this kind of extravagant, unqualified, unreserved devotion to him. But when we forget that, and we start looking at the little petty things. We get all, all wound up, don't we? So Judas objected with the bad heart. It was a good point, but with bad motive. Jesus responded. In the outline, I don't know if you can see it uh, online. You can you can find it. It's in there somewhere. It's a very tepid way of putting it. It's Jesus' observation—it was more than an observation. But I was trying to find the O's to alliterate. Did you notice it? Mary's offering, Judas' objection, Jesus' observation. I don't stick with alliterations because they often have a weak one in there. It's more than an observation. His observation was, "The poor you'll always have with you. You won't always have me." That's his observation. But he rebuked them. He said, "Leave her alone." Leave her alone. Have you ever been put upon by others when you really are trying to act out of a heart that is devoted to Christ and love for Him, and somebody disagrees with you, and you find somebody needling you, somebody putting you down? The world, pers- uh, the world doesn't understand. The world can can ridicule Christians. It's when other Christians ridicule you that that it bothers you the most, isn't it? And isn't it wonderful to think that Jesus is our advocate before the Father and our defender? Leave. Leave her alone. Leave him alone. She's mine. He's mine. I take what she's doing as a wonderful expression of love for me. And then Jesus went on to say that this counted for more than even Mary understood. He said, it was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. Now, this is a hard Greek sentence to translate. It actually says, let her keep it for the day of my burial. Now she had already poured it all out. what, What did that mean? It's leave her alone, let her keep it for the day of my burial. So the translations try to get a handle on what's intended here. I think that this is the best handle that I could could figure out. He says, leave her alone, it's hers to give. That's what the letter keep it means. It's hers to give. And this is the significance that is brought out by Matthew and Mark, that she has anointed my body for the day of my burial. Matthew and Mark express it that way. They don't realize, Mary doesn't realize, that even though Jesus has been telling them, I'm going to Jerusalem to be handed over, to be crucified, and I'll rise again on the third day. This is kind of, didn't understand that. But he says to Mary, he says to them about Mary, this is hers. And she's done this for the day of my burial. In fact, I think you could say that the let her keep it, it is for the day of my burial, means that God gave this to her. This is a provision from God for this purpose, to anoint my body for my burial. It's so far beyond what she could could think of. And it makes sense in this way when you save money for that wedding, and here in the coronavirus you cannot have that wedding, we have some couples in our church that are in that context. Can you imagine this circumstance? That uh, you've saved money up to, for your daughter's wedding, and now you can't have the wedding. And instead, you give it to your daughter uh, for her to use on the down payment for their house as a newlywed couple. And the sibling comes up. A sibling comes up and says, you didn't do that for me. You didn't help, help me with my down payment. Say, let her keep it. It was for her wedding. Now it's, it's hers. Let her use it on her home. You see, it's that kind of sense that Jesus is saying, leave her alone. God gave her this for this purpose, to anoint my body for burial. And you realize in the context how significant the connection is because He raised Lazarus back from the dead. They had buried him. They had anointed him. They wouldn't have used this jar on Lazarus' body again. But Jesus overcame death. And so Mary's thinking, who needs the perfume? When we're worshiping the Savior who raises the dead, that's the excitement we should have in a far greater way than Mary did with Lazarus. Do we have that? Does it lead us to extravagant, unfettered devotion?" Jesus, that's the delight of the the disciple. And we, we falter so much. Jesus said, you'll always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. This does not mean that he undermines the rest of his teaching that we should care for the poor. Not at all. He's just stating a fact that he's about to be crucified. He will rise again. He'll ascend into heaven. He says, this is worth it. This is worth it. Meanwhile, there's always this meanwhile in the Gospel of John. Jesus does this great and wonderful thing, and the opposition arises. We, we see it over and over again. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only, to see, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. This is celebrity stuff here. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus. As well, wow, for on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. Do not underestimate the bias that we bring to this with our hearts we 've talked about this before in the Gospel of John we don 't want to to surrender ourselves to Jesus and have this extravagant devotion to him to pour out our lives for him because we want to live for ourselves. We bring that bias in, and we are It gets ridiculous to have this kind of unbelief. They who knew Lazarus was dead, they saw him risen. Their way of thinking was, if we don't kill Lazarus too, everybody's going to believe in him. That's that's something. Don't let that be your heart. Instead, as you see Mary's example and remember what Jesus did for Lazarus, and even more what he did beyond the cross and his resurrection. I pray that we who know Christ would be filled with the Spirit to have this unbridled joy and devotion to him. And if if anyone doesn't know him, they would be drawn to put their faith and trust in him because he does indeed raise the dead. He gives us life beyond. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for what it teaches us. And we are, in many ways, exposed because we are so half-hearted. Now, Father, I pray that you protect us from pursuing a feeling, an emotion, that we just keep ourselves ramped up. I pray instead we would have a sincere, heartfelt, sold-out devotion to our Savior whether the times are good, whether they are bad, whether we are weeping, whether we are rejoicing, that would be the bottom line in our lives, for that is most important. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.